0: yeah we're in the bookstore (laughs) it's good to be here it's monday this will be part of a series and i'll probably stay on a set of topics throughout the week and publish monday wednesday and friday but uh today i want to talk about war And there's probably some bullet points in my notes that I'll touch on. But before I do that, I want to frame, uh, why I've thought about war for most of my life, not by my own doing, but, uh, by where I grew up. And then, uh, I'm probably going to talk more about my, uh, like own personal understanding or feelings, which is not that of a practitioner. I'm, I'm not in national security. Currently, I'm not in the aerospace and defense industry. I have not served in the military. So I want to make that clear. This is still uh, pure play commentary. And I'll pull on some things that I've I've studied and so forth. But just want to open it up with, I am not those things that I just named. So I'm coming at this from my own perspective. Uh, Just to give you a little bit of an understanding. So I grew up in Colorado Springs, Colorado. You can Google it. It's a evangelical military town. Later we'll probably talk about the evangelicalism, but for the military, uh, Colorado Springs, 45% of its economy, its local economy, it's a town of 600,000 people. Well, 450, but 600,000 with the Metro, 45% of its economy is concentrated in aerospace and defense. So, it has the highest concentration of aerospace and defense entities in the United States. That means it has over 300 private defense contractors, including the uh, the big primary contractors that uh, you may think of like a Raytheon or Boeing, Lido, some of those entities, Lockheed Martin. Um, and in dollars last year, Aerospace and defense represented $3.9 billion of payroll in Colorado Springs and brought $15 billion to the local economy in Colorado Springs. So if aerospace and defense brings $15 billion to Colorado Springs, lobbying in Washington, D.C. brings somewhere around $3.7 billion to Washington, D.C. So if you thought lobbying was out of control, or if you thought there was a lot of money coming into that sector, Colorado Springs is doing five times that in aerospace and defense. There's five military bases there. And again, 300 plus private defense contractors of all sizes and specializations. So when I, I, I moved to the Springs when I was very young as uh, I was like nine or 10 years old, 1998. So I moved to Colorado Springs. And I I left the Springs about 12 years ago. So I believe at that time I was roughly 22, maybe 22 or so. I hated the Springs. But I knew that the aerospace and defense industry was heavily present. Uh, And you have to think, I lived there during 9-11. I also lived there during the escalations uh, in the war in Afghanistan, uh, and the Iraq war. So I, so I got somewhat of a skewed perspective on war, but you got to remember, like I grew up around or vacationed with, or hung out with people that spent multiple decades in special forces or, uh, multiple decades in the air force or, you know, um, uh, multiple decades as an active duty member of the military. I believe that active duty military represents somewhere around 31% of labor in Colorado Springs. That's active duty, 31%. And in the aerospace and defense sector, uh, uh, so civilian or non-active duty, that we're talking 110,000 employees in that $15 billion a year sector. The, the, so what I'm describing is the town I grew up in. Uh, I even golfed on, uh, the air force Academy golf course. Uh, I, th- I think we did some shooting there, uh, fireworks, uh, I golfed on, uh, Fort Carson's golf course, which was one of the first golf courses in the region to put GPS on the golf courts. Wonder why, uh, probably cause they, uh, d- developed a lot of those technologies in the military. Uh, so, so I grew up in this town and, uh, it, it, it. It grossly affected the way that I looked at domestic politics, Uh, you know, because it's a hardcore conservative Republican town. Uh, It has to be pro-war. And we'll get into that in a moment because you've heard people talk about the military industrial complex. But then also you just get a lot of the tropes or the like misconceptions about uh, other cultures around the world. Basically, a, a lot of the international politics or, uh, domestic politics in Colorado Springs kind of boil down to, uh, people that are making decisions on war, which, which I, which I actually have respect for that. But but I, I did have to walk away from that viewpoint, uh, because I think a lot of it was misinformed and it definitely made me miss out on a lot of Uh, cultural understanding or cultural awareness and uh, and it's very one-sided perspective Uh, if you think about the community it's still the second largest city in Colorado the largest city would be the city and county of Denver Uh, and Denver is also the largest metropolitan area but Colorado Springs by population, is not that much smaller than the city and county of Denver City and county, Denver's probably at nine hundred thousand people. Colorado Springs, again, somewhere around six hundred fifty thousand, and it is growing like crazy right now. So they're they're still on a extended growth trajectory in Colorado Springs. So I knew all of these things were happening around me in in war, uh, national security, airspace, and defense. Because again, like my some of my friends' parents would come home from Iraq, Afghanistan, or tours in other parts of the world. Or, you know, I had, uh, family friends that, uh, you know, many, many, many family friends working for companies like Lockheed Martin, but I never like got into what they were doing. Uh, and it's funny. I even titled, uh, this Substack or this podcast war. Uh, because again, uh, a situation happened one time where I was hanging out with a friend and we were trying to talk a little bit of politics. This was a while ago. And, uh, I was talking about the aerospace and defense sector and he got really pissed off about that. And he's like, call it what it is. It's war. And I'm like, all right, uh, reality is it's, it's not just war, uh, and, and defense spending does drop in a great deal of uh, of innovation that ends up making its way to civilians or into the private sector, uh, but but there is an opportunity cost. So if the United States, uh, if the federal government deployed, you know, seven hundred and fifty or eight hundred billion dollars into aerospace and defense, you know, you you could argue um, that there are other programs that they could invest in uh, that could create more value domestically uh, for citizens obviously you couldn't redirect all of it but 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 you could argue that there might be other programs that create more value domestically for citizens of the united states um, so the point is this is where i grew up this is where i'm speaking from uh, i'm not in the springs i'm in boulder right now but but this is the perspective that I'm speaking from. So when, when, when I'm thinking about politics, war, like w- war is like been a normal conversation most of my life. Uh, I have multiple family members that served in the Air Force. You ain't gonna catch me in that kind of hierarchy. Uh, anybody listening to this that knows me, knows that I struggle with uh, the hierarchy inside of corporations. I don't know how I could uh, accommodate the hierarchy of the military, even though I have a great deal of respect for the military. And again, some of my best friends are still active duty or retired military veterans, but it's I never served. And I, I never had any intention of serving. I, I considered it in different ways lightly. And I was like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Um, but it's been a part of uh, my youth and, uh, and my understanding. I, I, did, I had a lot of friends from uh, high school uh, that would come home after two or three tours. And, you know, I'd notice some of the changes and we'd have some deep conversations about their experience. And those are unique, very unique stories. Not, not everyone is close to somebody that, um, has those experiences. But if you, if you grew up in Colorado Springs, uh, I mean, what, like one in three people, uh, were working in the sector either active duty or in the aerospace and defense sector. Uh, and then who knows what the percentage of people was that knew somebody in the military, 99%. How could you not know somebody in the military living in Colorado Springs? It's near, it's near impossible. Uh, it's very uh, pervasive part of the community and in, in some ways beautiful, but, but dark too. And also, um uh, Kind of ugly depending on how, how you're looking at it so, so I, I i see war from a personalized lens that's still detached uh and not that academic but maybe it is to some degree maybe it is academic maybe it's becoming more academic because of steps i'm taking with uh political science and you know conversations that i've been a part of over the years so I think what set my mind off on talking about war isn't necessarily to like sit here and talk about war directly, Um, but I'm, you know, I'm done with class. It's been about three weeks. So I'm back into the books that I want to read. And one of the things I'm doing is I'm listening to three books, one after the other, maybe a couple hours, maybe three to four hours in each one concurrently. Uh, so so one of the books is diplomacy by Henry Kissinger, which I understand that, um, diplomacy is highly contested in uh, certain circles, but, but at the end of the day, um, it still informs a great deal of, uh, American foreign policy period. So I'm going to read it. I'm going to see what Henry Kissinger is talking about. Uh, he, he was an academic. He he did all of his research at Harvard uh, before he began consulting and, and then obviously advising later in his life. So, so he, he was an academic. He did serve in the military. Uh, and he's been heavily influential. So if you agree with the man or you don't agree, agree with the man, he has significant influence in uh, uh, foreign policy in the United States, or at least the way it's thought about. So, so I'm reading diplomacy concurrently with, a, a, a book on Benito Mussolini, which is actually just called Mussolini. And then I'm reading that concurrently with another book called the rise and fall of the third Reich, which many people have heard about, I think on paper, it might be 2,300 pages on audio. It's like 64 hours. That's how long it is. Um, And to further complicate it, there's actually a fourth book that's been playing lightly in the background called Making the Arab World. What this is doing is I'm, you know, I'm getting a deeper understanding of historical context, I'd say, from 1900 uh, to maybe the 1980s or 90s globally, at least with concentrations in the Middle East, uh, Europe. And the United States, and then th- through through the lens of how Mussolini might be interacting with other countries, or uh, uh, the political dynamics leading up to Hitler being elected as a leader, and you know all of the things that were leading up to that war, or the analysis of Henry Kissinger of a number of presidents from 1900 on that still ties back to what Mussolini was doing at one point or what Hitler was doing at one point or what Nasser was doing at one point in his interactions with Robert Kennedy. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, John F. Kennedy, the for, the uh, president of the United States of America, not Robert Kennedy. So it's really fascinating to listen to these books and then to take in the analysis that's coming off of uh a lot of the political commentary uh the the research and you know places like Atlantic Council entities that uh are speaking publicly about how they see war uh you know some of these uh national security cyber security entities uh and then you know all the goddamn laymen on the internet that just say whatever the fuck they want with no accountability, which, which maybe you know, I'm one of them. Uh, but again, it's a broad swath of uh, individuals or entities that I'm listening to reading, including uh, academic papers and so on. So one of the things that uh, I'm still trying to get my head around in more detail is, uh, is, is is the idea of realpolitik or some people would call it real politic or in some international relations circles they might call it realism and I, I think that it gets referred to very loosely but i'm listening to henry kissinger describe realpolitik not just from his perspective but also from his observations of some of the top practitioners of this style of uh, foreign policy, which again, unfortunately, one of them would be uh, Joseph Stalin. And one note that I took away from uh, these discussions on Realpolitik is that Realpolitik teaches to ignore the motive of states, but rather to focus on relative power and to orientate decision-making around relative power uh and, and and uh and and the basis of this decision making is self-interest right so self-interest of the nation so so if if i'm grappling with what i just read to you ignore the motives of states uh, i need to come back to that but focus on relative power i may i may not be correct here uh, so, you know, but if I'm just thinking loosely on this, if I have relative power over another state, Realpolitik says that I should exercise the fullest extent of my self-interest over that other state that I have relative power over versus uh, what the intention is of their decision-making. Basically, respond to their decision-making based on the relative power available to me in that domain with the full expression of my self-interest maybe i'll have to come back to that but that's like loosely an idea that kind of locked into my head because you know people say realpolitik or they say realpolitik or they say realism all the time but, but i don't ever hear like a functional framework for uh that that type of uh Thinking and I don't hear the philosophy very often. And with these books that I'm reading concurrently, I'm I'm picking up on it more. So, I guess uh, self-interest is certainly the way that uh, the United States uh, engages in uh, foreign policy uh, and you know decision making abroad. It's not just the United States. There's other countries. I can't name them right now, but I want to dig deeper at some point into the philosophy of realpolitik, And then I want to look at the ways it's been applied practically so that I can bring some deeper analysis on how that might be influencing, uh, some of the interactions that we're watching play out in geopolitics. One of the things that I am hoping for, and I don't know if it's possible. But but I'm hoping that uh, the international system uh, could maybe become a little softer and maybe it could accommodate a broader range of politics instead of um, naturally placing liberal democracies in opposition to autocracies. I've, I see those arguments. I, I'm one hundred percent pro-liberal democracy but but there are some high functioning autocracies around the globe don't know if it's always the worst system maybe it looks like a really bad system uh, if you're outside of the united states or if you grew up with strong opinions or if you were in a part of the world that was affected by these autocratic regimes uh but but it, it it it's concerning to me uh as i Kind of try to dance through some of the data on liberal democracies over the years, and uh, autocracies that autocracies seem to be becoming more effective post World War II. They seem to be be becoming more effective, maybe more recently, um, at creating thriving economies, uh, like 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 strong thriving economies that are on in some cases like china a steep growth trajectory so if if the system is not soft let's say it stays hard and we're entering this scenario with uh with russia's political interest and the war that they're engaging in in ukraine and you know maybe uh anti American sentiment in China, maybe anti-China sentiment in the U.S., uh, maybe this new level of conflict between autocracy and liberal democracy. Where does that leave us? Do we just kill each other? Uh, Do do we use any means necessary to uh, prevent the growth or expansion of autocratic regimes? Do we engage in all levels of... uh, warfare and, uh, uh, confrontation, at, at any opportunity that presents itself or is, is there a way to, uh, I don't know, like have these softer ways of understanding other people's, uh, decisions on, uh, governance structure on politics, on religion. Like, it's, there's no doubt in my mind, especially from a human rights perspective, that there are some ultra conservative governments in the world uh, that I believe uh, are, are going to need to adjust some of their policies when it comes to women's rights, for example, like completely barring women from participating in uh, the economy. It doesn't seem like a smart decision, especially if that country is looking to set themselves onto some type of economic growth trajectory. Uh, I've seen lots of different reasons for why some of these ultra conservative, autocratic countries more often than not violate human rights. Or specifically women's rights, but but I do think that those parts of the world need to soften up to move into uh, whatever this new modern economy is going to look like. And, you know, the conservatives can make arguments on birth rates, which I don't know if all of that is uh, as legitimate as it sounds. But they could say, "Oh, we want to." Uh, keep the birth rate up by either restricting women's rights. Like that's a conservative argument. It comes in different flavors. Uh, Or we want to maintain the nuclear family because their population's declining. Somebody has got to maintain private life. Women have been maintaining private life for all these years, blah, blah, blah. So we can justify violating women's rights. Those countries to me need to loosen up. Uh, But what do you, a lot of uh exiles or people from uh parts of the world where these issues are occurring uh, start to lean towards they they start to lean towards well, sanction them do what, do what's being done to Russia, D- destroy these autocratic regimes and uh I, I see how that's like one reactionary way to respond to uh th- these human rights issues uh, but on another note uh if we're if we're outside of the human rights vein and we're just thinking about um if, if we're outside of the human rights vein and we're just thinking about war does this system just continue to escalate and escalate and escalate like we're putting states into a boxing ring and if you can knock somebody out in 30 seconds, like Mike Tyson uh, to, to the victor goes the spoils. Is, is that the international system that we're going to remain in? Like, why is it that some of the thinking from the twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, why is it that some of that thinking still invades for, foreign relations or uh, politics internationally? I I listened to a lot of the uh, uh, analysis from the academics. And one thing I like about war analysis in the academic realm is that you're going to get some historical context, maybe some societal or sociological context, uh, maybe some political context, and then uh, and then the current or modern uh, scenario. Now what you see like even with russia is that uh perceivably the russian government is citing thinking or ideology that existed way before vladimir putin got into office does that make sense does it make sense that uh america's foreign Relations or interactions with other states is informed by structures that were stood up when Franklin Delano Roosevelt was in office. Like seriously, does that, does that, does that make sense? Should we still be using this old thinking that probably made a lot of sense? And if you're in America, yield a lot of benefits. And if you're in other parts of the world fighting for human rights, has um definitely made liberal democracy, at least uh uh in theory, the pinnacle of uh success for human freedom on planet Earth, which I still think is inarguable, even if there are some issues that need to be resolved. But should we be making decisions on war uh through all of these old ways of thinking or old historical? Justifications or frameworks that haven't been updated in a long time. I don't know. I don't know if that is sustainable. You know, watching the Russia-Ukraine war play out in different ways, and being older, and being deep in my studies, it really does seem silly that a state uh can declare war with another state, and then um, they then these states fire missiles at each other. They fire guns at each other. They drop bombs on each other. And in, and it's not just the militaries that are being affected by war. It's um, average people. And you don't have to be in Russia or Ukraine to be affected by this war either. What's going on in the economy currently? There's so much speculation around what is or isn't happening in the global economy. From the economic perspective, I, I do listen to uh, the fed minutes meetings and fed announcements regularly. I I follow Jerome Powell. I followed Janet Yellen, uh, and, and I've read, uh, uh, a number of different economic, uh, philosophies outside of the classroom, studied a little bit of international political economy, some of these things that have been relevant, but I can hear the global economy through bankers, uh, like investment bankers. I can hear it through venture capitalists. I can hear it through stock traders. I can hear it through technologists, through entrepreneurs, uh, through people that are putting gas in their cars. There's a lot of like different uh, sources of information that I'm tapping into to try to inform my perspective. And uh, in terms of the global economy, which again, I think, Part of the issues have been set off by uh, COVID, but uh, further exacerbated by the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Uh, I, I don't know what's going on. I I can't see it. There's a lot of people that are talking like they have answers. But, but it seems like in these scenarios where there is a great deal of uncertainty, uh, I guess I guess the only thing you can do is plan for the worst and hope for the best. And so I'm starting to see some people come out of the emotional haze and uh, be a little bit more, uh, pragmatic about how they think, uh, the economy will shape up this year and, and, and next and, uh, what the impact of that will be. But I mean, inflation's increasing in a number of countries, not just the United States. And uh, there's a lot of people alive right now that weren't alive in the 70s or 80s and have never seen this level of inflation, ever. And and then it doesn't matter when you were born, home prices have never been this high. Interest rates are increasing, uh, you know, like maybe wages in certain areas will increase like aerospace and defense or high technology or banking. Uh, But in other areas, what happens if wages stay flat uh, and inflation continues to move north? It's unpredictable. And uh, in some ways, it's quite shocking to me. I I have spent a better part of last year and early this year uh, being highly critical of the Federal Reserve and of the current Fed chairman, of uh, of the bipartisan decision-making between Democrats and Republicans to print more money, trillions, uh, but we're, we're not in the only economy that prints money. And uh, th- th- Even as I try to write papers or look more broadly at uh, how central banks ingest information and how they make decisions and how the way that they speak uh, affects domestic economies and uh, international economies, I, I, I gotta do more research. I still can't see what's going on there. And sometimes I think that um, even with the finest information coming to uh, the Federal Reserve, I think they're doing a lot of guesswork right now. I don't know if they know. Um, and it's not like uh, the economy is this like super dynamic system. It takes a while to shut certain things down. T- takes a while to turn certain things online. Uh, there's a lag in, uh, being able to measure the effects of a policy. Sometimes it takes a couple years or even longer to know if a policy yielded the outcome that the policymakers were looking for. So it's really confusing to me. Uh, and, and, you know, talk about a scared world to some degree, like you have, uh, you have, uh. Finland, um which I'm not looking at my notes, but I, I believe if my geography serves me, Finland borders Finland borders Russia. Let me just pull up a map really quick. Um but you have Finland and Norway that are calling for the ability to join NATO and, and I I haven't read deeply into it, but, uh, that's how serious it is right now. Uh, the international community looks at Finland and Norway as mostly, uh, I don't want to say agnostic, but, uh, mostly uninterested in war, certainly not interested in uh, wars that the United States carry out. And uh, both countries are asking to join NATO. So, what are the implications of that, and how does that feed into uh, the rhetoric that uh, is coming out of Putin's mouth? uh, You know, where he says that NATO uh, basically threatens the sovereignty of uh, Russia if if these countries join. I don't know i need i want more details on that like i'm sure on a topical level people would say the answer is easy finland and norway are nervous about what russia is going to do and they want to block up with nato and they want protections maybe they feel that is a good way to protect their sovereignty but 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 then also you know uh you have increased defense spending in a number of countries uh japan I I believe, moved their defense spending uh, to 2% of GDP. Uh, You you have Germany coming online, increasing its defense spending. Uh, This year, 2022, apparently, is a record year for defense spending around the globe. Global defense spending exceeded $2 trillion. So, So that's every country around the globe. Now, if you want to laugh out of that 2 trillion, I mean 800 billion or so of it is the United States of America cuz we spend more on aerospace and defense than any other country. But you know, when people talk about the military industrial complex, are they saying that this aerospace and defense industry I was explaining earlier, this sector, this national security sector, are they saying that Because this sector is a for-profit sector, Uh, if it wants to ship its products and its products are designed for war, then there needs to be a war that's happening for these companies to grow and be profitable. Is that what they're saying? If countries increase their defense spending, then they're spending more on building these machines for war. Does that mean that they have uh, incentive at some point to enter a conflict or to declare a war? And, and, and is that an issue if the defense spending increases around the globe? Do, do we get to this point where we just have these extended conflicts that people profiteer off of? I don't know. Or or is this an environment where we can't just reduce it to the military industrial complex, but, but maybe we need to uh, figure out how to optimize within it? And maybe there's a way to make it softer. These are just some of the questions that are on my mind and some of the thoughts that I've been thinking about. I had some notes about China and national identity, but I I think, I think that's what I'm going to talk about on Wednesday. So stick around and, uh, I'm going to talk about China and national identity on Wednesday because I want to talk about national identity, some of the issues that, uh, people experience with xenophobia, uh, and some of the arguments, uh, in the anti China vein that I fully agree with and support and, uh, will continue to support, uh, depending on how things play out in the, uh, in the world of international order. All right. See you soon.